Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, presented by Canon Press. This week's episode is Gary DeMar's talk, Strangers in a Strange Land, from the series Daniel, How to Have Dominion in a Hostile World. Listen to the full series now on the Canon app. The theme I've taken for the book of Daniel is uh, the handwriting on the wall. And we're all familiar with that particular phrase. And Oz Guinness, in a book called The American Hour, he says, a generation that fails to read the signs of the times may be forced to read the writing on the wall. I think that's a great introduction into what the book of Daniel is all about. And oftentimes when we get to a book like Daniel, we so concentrate on the prophetic elements in the book of Daniel that we miss the living sections of, of, of the Bible. Uh, if, if, as you probably know, the book of Daniel is a book of prophecy. It's put into that realm of prophecy. And too many people, I think, dwell on its predictive elements and they miss all of the things that are applicational for us today. One of the things being, how in the world did Daniel and his three friends get to Babylon? What is it that Israel did that got into that place? They certainly didn't volunteer to go to Babylon. This wasn't a vacation that they were on. And so oftentimes this is missed when we get to a prophetic book, especially like the book of Daniel, because the book of Daniel is a, a, a book that is often used to predict what's taking place in our day today. Now, my perspective on eschatology, some of you probably know, is a little different from the more popular variety, but I'll explain myself as we go through the book of Daniel. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians. Uh, he, he's telling the Corinthians, I'm, I'm going back and looking at Israel's history, and I'm looking at Israel's history as an example for us today, that is, the people of Paul's own day. And Paul writes... Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So Paul's looking at the Corinthians, and, and you have to remember the, the, the time frame of this. The Roman Empire is in control of everything. This is prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Uh, these, uh, Rome is, a, is, a, uh, is an empire of nations. And as we, we get into the book of Daniel, you'll begin to, to see this. You'll be, the Babylonian Empire, and the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, we are in the by Paul's day, we were in the fourth stage of, of the Babylonian uh, uh, fall, and we're in the fourth stage of the, 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 the four kingdoms that uh, is, are outlined in chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Daniel. And Paul is giving instructions to the Corinthians on an attitude they have to keep in terms of how do you live within this, this, this Roman Empire. Their, their freedoms are, for the most part, gone, although there is a great deal of freedom of movement within the Roman Empire. But if you weren't a Roman citizen, uh, you're limited in terms of the impact you could have within the Roman Empire. We see this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 22, where the Apostle Paul is being beaten, just about to be beaten by a Roman soldier, and Paul, Paul just declares, would you beat a Roman soldier? And the Roman soldier says, I had to buy my Roman citizenship, and the Apostle Paul says... I was born a Roman citizen. And immediately he is cut down. 
Now, the assumption is there, if you're not a Roman citizen, you don't have, you don't have uh, entree into Roman civil society. You, you have no voice. Uh, the Apostle Paul was a, a Roman citizen as well as a Jew. Uh, we're not told just exactly how this, is, this was possible, but in fact it is possible, and at one point he appeals to Caesar. Well, Paul is giving instructions to the Corinthians on, look, don't make the same mistakes as the Israelites made, or you will suffer the same consequences. And I think this temptation here that, that Paul is talking about isn't temptation in terms of sin, but in, in, in particular sins, but temptations in falling under the sway of this Roman Empire in the worldview that the Roman Empire is all about. And so when we read a prophecy in the Bible, we read a section of history that deals with prophecy in the Bible, especially the book of Daniel, our temptation, I believe, is to project that prophecy so far into the future that it doesn't have any relevance for us today. This is not the way the Bible should be read. When you go back when you, and you read these historical accounts and even things related to prophecy, much of which I think has already been fulfilled, there are lessons that we can derive and should derive from, the, from those people who are experiencing the, those particular conditions. So when we look at the book of Daniel, we have to ask ourselves the question, how does this apply to us today? And so there are two things we have to keep in mind. Number one, what is the text saying? We have to figure out what the text is all about. And the only way that you can do that is by allowing the Bible to speak for itself. We have to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. It is, we don't have the prerogative of, of looking at the newspaper today and reading the Bible through the headlines of the newspaper. That is the wrong perspective. Uh, the history of date setting regarding prophecy is a long and failed history. Uh, you can go back generation by generation by generation and you will find people applying the text of Daniel to their own day. Uh, even pointing out particular individuals who fulfilled certain, uh, the, the little horn, for example, you'll find in, in the book of Daniel. They, they, here, here's the guy in our, in our day. We have to be very careful not to do that. We have to allow the Bible to interpret itself. And we have to, we have to learn how to do this methodology. Because uh, the temptation, I think, is, is to allow current events to color our view of prophecy. And I think Daniel is a good place to start uh, because it's a, it's a fairly familiar book. Uh, we, we, we know the storyline in the book of Daniel as well. We, we know a lot of the imagery. And uh, my perspective, as I mentioned, is probably going to be a little bit different. Uh, but I think it's, it fits better with uh, the, the methodology that I'm going to present to you, and that is to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So it's, while Daniel is read mostly as a book of prophecy, it's its practical living sections that are instruction for us on how we should live today. And, and I think it's, it's a perfect book for today because some of the things that we're experiencing in our own culture. Uh, we, we view our culture as collapsing around us. Uh, Daniel was in a much worse condition than that and yet lived, not only lived to rule, but lived to tell about it. And of course that particular Babylonian kingdom fell and others followed and fell as well and the Christian church and God's kingdom continues to advance throughout the world. These are the kinds of, these are the kinds of things that we need to keep in mind. Uh, too often we think we have it bad. Things are really bad today. And all you have to do is drive around here. 
There's churches on nearly every corner. You can just think just up and down this highway. You just build a new church just up the road from us. Uh, you got Burnt Hickory. There's Burnt Hickory uh, Baptist. There's the Methodist Church on the corner. There's a Presbyterian Church across the street. The Bible is, is, has been uh, published in nearly every language. Uh, there's freedom to worship. There's, there are no Gestapo here coming in here and telling us, taking notes down as to what I'm saying, although I, mean, I guess that's possible. There could be somebody in here, but I recognize everybody unless you've been a plant here for maybe 10 years. Uh, freedom to educate our children. You can choose as to where you want to send your children to school. A standard of living that would rival most monarchs prior to the 20th century. Uh, in fact, I was... Uh, uh, I, was, I did a pre-interview uh, on Friday. Um, I'm, I'm doing a radio interview tomorrow, tomorrow evening, and it's, the f- producer of the show called me, and he was, it's on prophecy, and he, he was telling me how, aren't things getting worse and worse? I said, I said, you're talking to me on a cell phone. I'm holding this little piece of equipment in my hand, and you're in California, and you and I are talking. And I said, your fellow, your guy's going to do a radio show from California, Los Angeles, that you can check on the Internet. I said, all of this technology that we're seeing today is, is a, can be a help for advancing the gospel. We oftentimes see these things as negatives because the other side has them. And yet we, 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 don't, we don't seem to realize that these things were given to us. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about this. So... Our standard of living today is far beyond anything that anyone has experienced in the history of the world. Uh, The instant global communications, ease of travel. I complain about a five-hour plane trip to the West Coast in air-conditioned comfort. And then I went, um, in 1845, it took four to five months to travel from New York City to California by wagon. In 89 days by clipper ship around Cape Horn. In 1870, it took 10 days to go from New York to San Francisco via Chicago uh, by train. In 1903, it would have taken 63 days to do it by car, and you, have, and you would have had to have taken a mechanic along. In 1920, you could make the trip by air in three days. In 1933, you could fly by air in 18 hours. And so here I'm complaining about a five-hour trip. And you're going to have got to go down to the Hartsfield uh, uh, airport. I got to park my car. I don't have to take a buggy down there. And see, we have this idea of what the, how bad we have it, and we really don't. Now, some of the moral conditions of, of our world today are certainly uh, on the line, but we can go trace back through history and that as well. And then we'll have to ask ourselves the question, why are the moral conditions in our world as bad as they are? Whose fault is that? That's a question we have to ask. You can get foods from around the world brought to our, brought to our ne- neighborhood while we sleep. You just go down to Publix, and all of a sudden, the, sh- the food shows up. Uh, this, is, this is going on constantly with, uh, a, 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 in our nation. The ability to change the political landscape without revolution or fear of governmental reprisals when a change is made. We just had an election. Not a single shot was fired after the election. There were, you know, it was about a, almost a 50-50 uh, electoral vote. You think of that. 50 million people lost, and yet there wasn't a single shot fired over this. I mean, this, we are in, a, in, a, in an era of, of, of great potential and great possibilities, and I believe the, re, the reason for that is, is that Christianity had a tremendous impact on, our, on this land. 
This is why America was the greatest nation on earth, and people wanted to come here. There was a reason for that, and Christianity made the difference. And yet there are Christians today who believe that it's, it's not possible to make these types of changes. Uh, medical care uh, is it's second to none. Uh, who was the first president born in a hospital? Does anybody know? It was Jimmy Carter was the first president born in a hospital. Uh, we, but we take that for granted today about uh, bringing our children uh, into this world in a hospital. Anesthesia. Um, humorous P.J. O'Rourke says, when you think of the good old days, think dentistry. I mean, you, I mean, you, you, you think of this. Uh, Gary North, who's sitting over here, I, I didn't know he was going to be in the class today, he, he wrote, the greatest invention of the modern world is anesthetics. Prior to 1844, in preparation for an operation, you drank booze until you passed out, hopefully. Then the physician, Sawbones he was called, got started hacking away. I mean, things have changed considerably today, obviously. I mean, can you imagine what the... Go to the, um, uh, the, 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 the museum right below Kennesaw Mountain, and there is a, um, there's a display in there of the doctor's bag. Have you, ever, have you seen the doctor's bag and the saw that was in there? I mean, they did those operations right there on the battlefield. Uh, and, of course, antibiotics and, and, and so forth. So we often think of our day as just being an impossible era in which to live, and yet it's probably one of the greatest times in the world to live. And I think the responsibilities that we as Christians face is that we have retreated from society and we have allowed secularists essentially to take over in our society. And we'll talk more about that as, as the time goes on. In some areas, as I've mentioned, we do have it bad, but not as bad as Daniel and his three friends. Now, now let's go back and just take a little peek at what Daniel experienced. Um, he was deported from his home uh, and, of course, lost anything related to, uh, to civil society. He, he, had, he had no impact initially into what the Babylonian culture was all about. And yet Christians today have all the rights of citizens, and many do not use their political freedoms to their fullest. And you think of that. Uh, this last election, I mean, there are probably 30% of Christians who did not vote, had no interest at all in, in, in politics. Uh, Daniel had no financial resources, no political connections, he was placed in an attractive re-education environment, and he was separated from his family. Now, he had it bad. And yet, as we'll see, Daniel ends up being one of the rulers in, in Babylon. Now, if that's the case for Daniel under these very severe conditions, then we have to ask ourselves the question, with millions of Christians in the United States, why aren't we having a better impact? What is it that's holding us back from having that kind of impact? How is survival, let alone dominion, possible under such circumstances, Daniel's circumstances? And yet that's exactly what Daniel accomplished. He, like Joseph before him, became ruler in Babylon during a time when he, be, when he came to Babylon as a captive. Daniel 2.48 says, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. 
Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Now here's Daniel, stripped of anything related to his, his, his nation, uh, any status he might have in, in his nation, his social status, political status, or whatever, his family. It's obvious he came from a, probably a higher, higher level of family in, in Israel, in the southern kingdom. And yet he rules in Babylon. And, and I believe this, the, the, the solution to this, or the answer to this, is simply he does it through service. He simply serves. He serves in this kingdom. And he serves with the full acknowledgement that God is the sovereign ruler over all things. And when you do that, when Christians serve in the capacity that God has called them to serve and apply God's word faithfully in the realms of responsibility that God has given us, you end up essentially ruling in that area. You're not ruling by domination. You're not ruling by fear. You're ruling by service. And you know this in your own, where you work. The people who serve where you work, who do their job and do it well, and are there to serve not only the, the company and the employees and customers, are the ones who advance through, through companies. It's not those who dominate and who, who backbite and who gossip are the ones who do that, or instill fear. It's the ones who serve. And this is, again, something that is, is I think, missing within within Christianity. First, we have this idea that as Christians, we're not supposed to be involved in things beyond the church. We're, le- we're, we're to leave our Christianity in this realm, but when we get over here in this realm, we adopt the things that are practical for this world. We, we, we use the things of the world in this realm because the Bible only speaks to a very narrow area of life, and that just isn't the case. Christians today get discouraged and feel helpless, even though they have the freedom ability, and means to make changes at every level of society. Uh, Many believe cultural change is impossible. I don't believe that. And I think America is an evidence of the fact that Christianity does, in fact, make change societies. And I think you would have seen the same with Europe before us. And I believe you're beginning to see this uh, in in countries uh, like China. I mean, China has a burgeoning Christian population. Now, percentage-wise, in terms of the population of China, it may be small, but in terms of numbers, it actually outpaces Christians here in the United States. Same thing is happening in Central and South America, and it's happening in Africa as well. But if, if uh, one, of the thing, one of the biggest disappointments I always, always get from my going to missions conferences is it's, it's the idea that we're over there, to present the gospel to these people, maybe start a little school over there, get them saved and get their families saved, but there's no talk about the broader culture. And so what happens is, is when a new regime comes in, they come in there and they throw the missionaries out. But if, if, if missionaries would begin to see that, there's a, that, that they are involved in a comprehensive worldview, that the Bible applies to every area of life, it's not just bringing somebody new to Christ, but it's also dealing with education, it's dealing with journalism, it's dealing with economics, it's dealing with politics. That's what the founders of this nation understood. They took the Bible and they applied it as best they could to every area of life, and they did not believe, by the way, that politics was at the top and it was to impose that worldview down. It was always bottom-up, not top-down. 
Uh, we've reversed this in our own day. We have this idea that if we change things at the top, things are going to change at the bottom. It's the wrong perspective. The, the perspective is we change things at the bottom and then things at the top change. In fact, things change so much at the top that you actually get a smaller civil government. We have it reversed. The pyramid's upside down. You, you know, you change the individual and, and that's all we care about. And so what happens is, is that government gets big. But if you change individuals at the bottom and they understand that they are the, the governors of their own lives and their families and business and, and, and churches and schools and so forth, then the pyramid gets right side up again and, and civil government at the top begins to come in. It gets smaller. Uh, here's one particular Christian leader, a very prominent Christian leader. He says, reclaiming the culture is a pointless, futile exercise. I am convinced we are living in a post-Christian society a civilization that exists under God's judgment. Now, it may be absolutely true that we're living in a post-Christian society, and it may be true that we're a civilization that exists under God's judgment, but that's happened before. In fact, if you go back and you read the Old Testament, Daniel is a good indication of all of this. They were under God's judgment, so much more than we are right now. And yet God's church continues to exist. Babylon is gone, the Medes and the Persians are gone, the Greeks are gone, and Romans are gone. The church of Jesus Christ is still here, and it's still impacting the world. Impacting the world so much that you have people out there still seeing us as an ideological worldview threat. Now, there's been the rise, of the, new, uh, the rise of the new atheists out there. They understand once Christianity is, is done away with, they will have their way with the world. And so when they hear something like reclaiming the culture is a pointless, futile exercise, they cheer. But we as Christians should be on the, on the edge to say, no, it isn't a pointless, futile exercise. It's an inevitability if Christians would apply the Bible to every area of life. So there is a connection between moral decline and national decline. Uh, Deuteronomy 31.17, Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be consumed, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? So the conditions that we are seeing in our, in our world today are our fault. It's not the world's fault, it's our fault. And here's a quotation from uh, T.S. Eliot. Um, he says, this is kind of the blame shifting that, that, that we're often involved in as Christians. He says, one reason why the lot of the secular reformer seems to me easier than that of the Christian reformer is this, that for the most part, the secularist conceives of the evils of the world as something external to himself. If there is evil incarnate, it is always incarnate in the other people, a class a race, the politicians, the bankers, the armament makers, and so forth, never in oneself. For most people to be able to simplify issues so as to see only the definite external enemy is exhilarating. This is an exhilaration that the Christian must deny himself. It causes pride, either individual or collective, and pride brings its own doom. See, we, want, we always want to... Not, I'm, I'm using the, the collective we there, but generally we want to we blame the other guy. It's the abortionists. It's the homosexual community. It's, it's, those, it's greedy Wall Street. 
Now, you can go on down the line with all of this. And, they, and certainly they have their sins. There's no doubt about that. But ultimately, you know, uh, Ju- Israel and Judah were sent into captivity not because of what the Babylonians did and what the Assyrians did before them. They went into captivity because of what they did. And if our nation is in, a, is in moral decline, look, I hate to have to say this, but it's our fault. We let it get that way. You, you, you just go back educationally. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of these educational institutions were started by Christians. So nobody came in with a gun and took, took that away from them. Christians gave it up. Uh, and you can, you can just trace this all the way through. And you can find Christians today just kind of compromising here or there. The problem is with us. There's a passage out of Isaiah one twenty two where it says about Israel, your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water. Now, that has application for us today in our own culture. Uh, your silver has become dross. They, they took the, the finery of silver and they put a base metal in it and they used it and they passed it off as the real thing. Well, that's going on today. All these bailouts that are going on, which... You know, a lot of people are upset about, and I bet you they're upset about it because they're the ones not being bailed out. They're upset that other people are being bailed out, but they're not the ones being bailed out. And if they were being bailed out, they would accept it for the most part. Many of them would. Of course, a lot of people are upset. We sit around at home. You know, when you do the right thing, when you pay your bills on time and you, you, you look at your mortgage and you see how much you can, you can afford and so forth, you do the right thing and then we have this kind of collapsing culture, this economic culture on us. But let's face it, it's, it's easier just to accept, let the government do something for us. And you can, people want universal health care. Uh, people want give more and more money to education. Uh, you, you, can, you can trace as, as, as the money for education goes up, literacy, literacy rates go down. What, and you know, in the 1940s, I believe the literacy rate among whites was 96%, and among blacks it was 80%. And that's down today. And yet we have thrown trillions of dollars in the area of education. In the, in the issue of war as well, it says, Rebuke the beasts and the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples, trampling underfoot the pieces of silver, he has scattered the peoples who delight in war. I don't know what your sentiments are and what's going on ar- around the world and going into Iraq and those kinds of things, but we have to be very careful as to of what constitutes a just war. It's, 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 it's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing to go to war, and it's something that needs to be contemplated very, very deeply. Uh, and the Bible has a lot to say about that as well. And so Daniel and the, 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 uh, the kingdom of Judah goes into captivity, not because Babylon was so bad. They went into captivity because they were the problem. And that's hard to take for Christians today. We don't like to look at ourselves and see where we've made mistakes, but that's something we have to do. So that's kind of introductory into the, the, the themes that I, that, that I want to cover, and, uh, and, and we'll deal with the prophetic elements as well. Um, let's look at the historical context of where we are in, in Daniel's prophecy. Uh, just very, very briefly, as you know, after the death of Solomon, the, the kingdoms are divided uh, under Jeroboam I and Rehoboam, the northern tribes and the southern tribes. 
And uh, the, the north is called Israel, and the south is called Judah. Uh, mainly in the south, you have uh, Judah and, and Benjamin. The northern tribes go into captivity from the Assyrians, and then the southern tribes, uh, Judah goes into captivity among the Babylonians. And so that, that kind of puts things in perspective in terms of what happened. You have, so you have Solomon, you have a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom about the 8th century B.C. goes into captivity in Assyria. And then what's left is Judah. Judah goes into captivity under the Babylonians in about, about 587 uh, B.C. Let's look at the author of the book of, of Daniel. While we don't know much about Daniel, uh, except in terms of the book that bears his name, he is mentioned in Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel mentions him as an example of righteousness along with uh, Noah and Job and also the, as the personification of wisdom. Daniel came from a royal family. You can read that in Daniel 1.3. He was educated, Daniel 1.4. Uh, this would work to the king's advantage uh, because by getting an educated Jew... And then if you can flip this educated Jew, he can then take that education he learns as the new Babylonian worldview and go to his own people and re-educate them. Now, this has always been the tactic of the educational establishment. Get the best and the brightest, get them into the, into the institution uh, for worldview change, and then turn them back on to their own people to train them in the new worldview. It's, it, it's done today all the time. Uh, the attraction of the Ph.D., for example, is to get the best and the brightest. And it's a number of, 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 of people who have gone off to get the Ph.D. and came back and had their whole worldview uh, twisted as a result of that. Uh, I'm not putting anything down on a Ph.D., but there is this. The other side understands if you get the best and the brightest and educate them in the new worldview, then they go back into their own in educational institutions and begin to, to flip people. Daniel was a faithful Jew who was able to deal with the philosophy philosophies of Babylon, and uh, there is a lesson today uh, where young people really need to understand the philosophies of the day when we send them off to educational institutions. They need to know. They need to have an apologetic methodology to deal with the philosophies of the day, and most young people don't. Um, they, they, they really could not uh, debate an atheist, for example, if, if they were required to. Uh, they couldn't deal with economic issues if they were required to. Uh, this is something, again, that the church needs to pick up. Our, our young people need to be on the cutting edge of, of, uh, of, of apologetic methodology, and it's uh, something that you really need to think about with your own children. Uh, there are a number of, of debating organizations for, for homeschoolers, and if your children are in public school, they need to be involved in debate as well, and they need to get trained on how, how to do that. But they also need to, they need to have the factual information in order to handle that. There's no mention of Daniel's family, but it's obvious from what we read in the book of Daniel that his parents did a great job raising him, very similar to Timothy, who had his mother and his grandmother. Um, let's see, I've got a few more minutes in this session. Um, I'll skip over that. Let's, the, the book of Daniel, uh, there's a curiosity in the book of Daniel in terms of languages. Uh, if you look at Daniel chapter 1 and go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, you won't see it, obviously, in your English version, but you would see it in, um, if you picked up a Hebrew, Hebrew Bible, and that is the language changes from Hebrew to Aramaic. And you may have a note in your Bible telling you that. So in verse 4, 
It says, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. And this goes all the way on through the end of chapter 7. Now, there have been a lot of speculation as to why uh, this goes to Aramaic. Um, one writer says is that Aramaic was, uh, was the language of the day. Just like Greek became the language of the day in Jesus' day, Koine Greek was common Greek, Aramaic was, was, the, was the language of the nations. It was the language of commerce. And so, so Daniel's book, Being in Aramaic, is the, the message from chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 7 is to the nations. Um, it, it's hard to tell. It, we can only speculate on that, but uh, that seems, a, a, I think, a fairly good explanation of it, especially when you start reading what these chapters are all about. These are, this is a proclamation to the nations at large. There isn't a lot of difference between uh, Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, if you were to see the, the script, it's pretty much the same. A lot of the words are the same. There are some variations in the way words begin and end and so forth. Uh, but it was the language of, of, of commerce of the day, and people would have understood it. Um, let's see. About the dating of the book of Revelation, uh, of Daniel, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, liberals, of course, say that the, book, that the book of Daniel was written about the 2nd century B.C., uh, most conserv- almost all conservative scholars say that the book of uh, Daniel was probably written around the 6th century B.C. Uh, skeptics, don't, skeptics always late-date books, especially prophecy books, because they don't believe in prophecy. And so they cannot say a, 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 a prophetic book of the Bible was written prior to these events taking place. So they always have to put it after the fact. Uh, they do that with the New Testament books as well. They want to take, like, like the Gospel Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which has a very large prophecy in there about the destruction of Jerusalem, the Olivet Discourse. And they'll say, well, obviously, uh, they really couldn't have predicted all that, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written after the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So this is typical of, of skeptics. And again, I'm not going to go through all their arguments. Uh, when, you're, when you're looking at history that's 2,600 years old, uh, be very skeptic, skeptical of a skeptic. Uh, they, when you read their stuff, it's really, it's rather bizarre. I mean, we really, we really don't have these uh, these historical records uh, of of the day, and there's there's no way that you could actually trust a historical record of the day as well. Um, so, I, I'll I'll stick with the biblical text on all of this and uh, not worry so much of what the skeptics are all about. You get a good book, a good conservative book on Daniel, and you'll get the late and early date analysis. I won't go through all of that. Uh, One last point before we we close this session out is that Daniel in the New Testament. uh, There are a number of references to Daniel in the New Testament, um, and I think there are also a number of things related in the book of Daniel that are, are key to understanding some of the events in the New Testament. First, Daniel is mentioned in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, uh, regarding the abomination of desolation. And when we get to um, Daniel chapter 9, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so Daniel, uh, Matthew 24, 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, so here we have Daniel mentioned by Jesus, and so in order to understand Matthew 24, 15, you have to understand something about the book of Daniel. The Magi, 
in the anticipation of, of uh, Simeon and Anna about the coming Messiah. Uh, how, did they, how did they get this idea that the Messiah was, was near? I believe they got it from Daniel's uh, 70 weeks. It's very specific in there, 70 weeks of years, 490 years, or then very easy to calculate 490 years from the time a decree went, a decree went out as to when the Messiah would be born and therefore would be a man. And so there was this anticipation. And I believe uh, it helps to understand the book of Daniel to, to, to determine the, the coming of these, these magi, as they're often called, and Simeon and Anna's uh, waiting for the Messiah to come to the temple. Uh, there are allusions to Daniel in the Gospels. Uh, the idea of, um, of this, the, the, uh, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor, uh, Daniel 2.35. Uh, in Matthew 21.44 we read, And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust. So you're going to find these literary allusions uh, in the New Testament uh, based upon, I believe, a number of things in the book of Daniel. You will find in Matthew chapter 24, 30, it says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So we're back to the Olivet Discourse again in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus says you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, that's a direct quotation from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. So to understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, you're going to have to go back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. You can't take Jesus' words just out of that context and figure out what he's saying. You've got to go back to what it meant in the context in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, the idea of a desolation is mentioned. If you look at Matthew 23, 38, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And if you look at Daniel 9, 26, uh, you will see it says, and, it, and its end will come like a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And there are other allusions as well, and we'll, we'll pick that up uh, next week. Uh, I've, I've run through these in, uh, kind of hurriedly, and I'll, I'll, again, I'll bring this up next week. But as we go through the various parts of the book of Daniel, we'll come back to these and see how they fit in this broader prophetic scheme uh, that Daniel is writing about. Uh, but w what I would want you to do um, this, this week is, is to read the first chapter of the book of Daniel. Just read through it, get familiar with it. Um, and uh, if you could to actually, you know, in the next couple of weeks, just read through the entire book of Daniel. And I want you to keep these five points in mind as you read through the book of Daniel. They will, they will occur broadly throughout the whole book, from chapters 1 through 12. You will be able to, point, you'll be able to find these five points. And at the same time, you will see these five points nearly in every section of the book of Daniel. And here they are. Who's in charge? It's the sovereignty issue. To whom do I report? It's the representation issue. Who represents the sovereign? What are the rules? That is law. What happens when I keep or break the rules? Sanctions. Does this worldview have a future? Legacy. Let me go over these five again. The sovereignty issue. 
Who's in charge? Second, representation. To whom do I report? Who represents this sovereign? And how do they do it? Law. What are the rules? Sanctions. What happens when I keep or break the rules? Legacy. Essentially, who inherits? Who wins in the end? When you read chapter 1, you will find all five of those. And when you get to chapters 2 and 3, you'll find them again. You will find them all the way through the book. In fact, you can read the whole Bible with those five points in mind, and you will find them occur over and over and over and over again. And we'll discuss a little bit about that next week as we take a, 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 a deeper look into the book of Daniel. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the full series, Daniel, How to Have Dominion in a Hostile World. Listen now on the Canon app.